Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy coming at me live in living color on the other side. So what's up? Yep, yep. How you doing, Darcy? I'm doing okay. I just finished a really, really hard workout on the bike. I downloaded because you know I have that bike and I have the trainer, like I can ride inside or whatever. But I downloaded the Peloton app. Oh. And I started doing some workouts there. Oh my gosh, today was it was a 45 minute climb. It was so hard. So wow. I'm ready to just veg right? out and just yeah, kill it with have a, a glass of whiskey or something. Dude, I, like, I don't even know. I just want to, like, I have, like, a headache because I feel like I just haven't drank enough water, so I just want to drink a lot of water. And, like, <laughs> I am, maybe some chocolate milk. <laughs> I'm not drinking as heavily because I'm yeah. we're trying to get pregnant, so I'm having an occasional glass of wine, but it's definitely hard. Yeah. <laughs> I can't do my basic alcoholic habits that I've adopted <laughs> since quarantine arose. Yeah. But, um. Before we jump into the main topic, I have a couple of things that we want to chat about. Do you want to cover off on yours first, or do you want to do it at the end of the show, or what do you, how do you want to? Um, yeah, I'll go ahead. Um, so I don't make a habit of doing this, neither Sarah and I do, but we we got a review that I, I do kind of want to address. Um, and it was a mostly positive review, but um, they do talk about how they think that Sarah and I both come from white privilege. And I wanted to address that because I'm not white. And Sarah does not come from an affluent background. I don't come from an affluent background, but I did grow up in an affluent area. Um, And I think that, I think, you know, we, we need to kind of all be careful about the assumptions that we make about people based on how they sound. Right. Um, And I understand that in some senses we can sound privileged because we are both highly educated and we both currently do have privilege, right. but we've made a very intentional effort throughout our entire lives and our academic careers and professional careers of getting outside of our own bubble and learning about the experiences of other races. And from my perspective, I won't speak for Sarah, but from my perspective, I grew up in an affluent area of primarily white students and I being biracial half black I was always very aware that I was other so I do not know what it's like to grow up white and affluent I only know what it's like to grow up having what I felt like was a secret that I was afraid of people finding out that I was not comfortable telling people that I was biracial until I was 27 and moved to California because I grew up in Alabama and that was a very scary thing to have people know what I felt like was a secret because I was afraid of how people would treat me so I just want to kind of address that because um I do want to apologize if that's the way we came off it wasn't our intention but I do think we all need to be a little bit careful about how we make assumptions about how people sound right um and you know i grew up in a very poor background my mom had five kids was a single mom we had public assistance for a good portion Um, my dad never paid child support um we struggled we really struggled and i never got scholarships i worked my way through college i worked paid for every i'm still paying my student loans um Mm -hmm. and will be probably until i die Um, Mm -hmm. And I grew up in communities where I was the only white kid in the class, and that includes college. So I don't want to come off like, I'm so woke. (laughs) I'm that girl who's so woke, because we all have stuff to learn. We all have to be respectful of other people, and we all have to understand our own privilege and to do our best to learn about other people and to understand Mm -hmm. everyone's story and everyone's perspective. And I try my best to do that. Am I good at it? No. Sometimes I'm not. 
and I and I apologize if I'm not, but I get back on that horse and I try to understand people's experiences and cultures and races, and I try to be respectful of that. And can we do more um, racial bias type stories or stories about people of color? Absolutely. Um, that's something we're committed to doing in the upcoming year because we both feel as though those types of stories do not get the same sorts of coverage that white women in particular mm -hmm. get. So we are doing our best in 2021 to try to write some of that and make some corrections to try to do more stories about people of color or people that don't have the, the white privilege in their background. So um, mm -hmm. we will do our best to try to accommodate for that um, in the upcoming episodes. Right? Yep. Yep. So if you have any questions or comments about that, you can absolutely send us an email. We're happy to discuss it, to talk about it, to um, get into discourse with people about it, because we feel like that's our responsibility as someone who, as people who are out there mm -hmm. in the social media and out there in the public eye, we have a podcast, we have a social responsibility to do our part in this situation that's going on with this country. So Right. And, and genuinely, thank you for the very kind review and the... I would consider that constructive criticism because it wasn't hurtful. It wasn't written in a hurtful way. Right. Um, and perhaps Sarah and I just need to do a better job of talking about our backgrounds. Maybe we don't talk enough about that. And maybe that's why, um, you know, sometimes things can sound the way that they sound. But, um, but thank you for the review, really and truly. Yes, absolutely. So um, I've got a couple things to jump into as well. Um, I don't know if you saw this as well, but it says December will have the largest meteor shower of 2020 and a total solar eclipse and kissing planets. So if Whoa. you're into astrology and into what's going on in the night skies, there's going to be some cool stuff happening in December. And they say it's an excellent month to be a stargazer. It's going to have the largest meteor shower of 2020. Have and you ever seen a meteor shower? I have. It's absolutely amazing one. but they're usually really late at night like two three oh. o'clock in the morning which is probably why you haven't seen them yeah um this year has been rather dreadful but these celestial events will end it on a high note um this talks about what they are but the largest meteor shower of 2020 it's called the geminid and it's supposed to happen on the night of sunday december 13th wait did we already no wait, we have another okay no that's um, next sunday yeah so i'll try to post this early so people have that and into the early hours of monday december 14th the Geminid meteor shower will reach its peak. It may be possible to see 150 meters per hour, <gasps> meteors per hour this year, thanks to a moon-free sky. Whoa. The best time to watch from anywhere around the globe is around 2 a.m. And you need to go to an area where there's a dark, open sky. The meteors will appear quickly and look white. I don't know. Going somewhere isolated at 2 a.m. sounds like a great way to right. get murdered. <laughs> uh, is, that, is that the advice we want to give people? Don't go alone. Make sure you take a whole group of people and yeah. have a party out there and stay six <laughs> feet apart and wear your mask. Yeah. Um, the only total solar eclipse of the sun happens in 2020 as well. The new moon moves directly in front of the sun on December 14th, also around the same time. The next day. Making it this year's only total solar eclipse. Unfortunately, though, this one's only visible from South America. Oh. Specifically excuse me, specifically Chile and some parts of Argentina. Mm. Um, some parts of South America, Southwest Africa, and Antarctica, Antarctica will also be able to see this. And then the first Jupiter-Saturn kissing planet since the millennium is happening as well. What's uh, a kissing planet? I'm going to explain it to you. On, oh. <laughs> on December 21st, in what is called a great conjunction or kissing planets, Jupiter and Saturn will be extremely close together, 0.1 degree apart to be exact. 
This meeting will be the first Jupiter-Saturn conjunction since 2000. Not only that, but it will be the closest one since 1623. Whoa! Which was just 14 years after Galileo made his own telescope. I wonder, like, what the actual distance between the planets will be. Like, it'll look like it's 0.1 degree apart right? from, to us, but, like, it's I wonder what the probably millions of miles, but still, it's going to look... Or light, yeah, yeah, they're yeah. They're going to look like they're kissing, like they're touching in the night sky. And then December 21st is also the date of the December solstice. Mm-hmm. So, interesting, right? Yes, that and the monoliths like that's what i was going to talk about next (gasps) oh my god (laughs) i don't i was just gonna say i don't know if you heard about it but those mysterious metal monoliths have been appearing everywhere they found the first one in the utah desert and then it suddenly vanished Mm-hmm. And people said that it was like conservation people that went and tore it down because they didn't, the people. Yeah, were, it was like a group of guys that that went and tore it down. And they said like, leave no trace or yeah, something like that. Like drawing you're not too much attention in the desert. Yeah. yeah. And people were coming out there and destroying it. Because it's a national garbage. park, right? But then they've also been finding other ones. I don't know if you heard about that. Yeah, Romania. Um, Just a second here. There's a list of the ones that they're finding them. They said it was an illegally installed structure and was removed by an unknown mm-hmm. party, not park department personnel. Right. Um, the monolith, which eerily resembled a mini version of the structure featured in the classic science fiction movie 2001, A Space Odyssey, was installed in the remote Red Rock country of southeast Utah. So biologists spotted it by helicopter, etc., and that was some craziness. But um, tourists flocked to the site in recent days to mm-hmm. view the structure i think those are the ones that are creating a lot of garbage and, and whatnot mm-hmm. but they started finding them in other places and i don't know I, I saw an article about it but i didn't pull it up but they were finding them all around the world now in various little areas this one was like permanently attached to the rock the one in utah but the other ones have just been sitting on the surface and they've yeah. been popping up and it's probably copycat people right i mean i'm sure it's somebody or like was, a marketing thing yeah i mean I, i'm sure it's not aliens but you never know right uh, yeah <laughs> the second one was in romania which is a really obscure location yeah and then the third one was in somewhere like rural california yeah just really wild and wacky just interesting yeah. stuff like i wonder what the intent was with it and right like I saw somebody, like, it was, like, one, a viral tweet, tweet that was, like, can we just get to the end of this marketing campaign already? Like, it was, like, we're yeah. just so, like, 2020 has with... been so crazy that it's, like, yeah. I think no one is surprised by anything anymore. Like No. There's a monolith, of course. That would have been a great trick to play before COVID, but now we're all, like, Kissing planets, hey. why not? <laughs> <laughs> we're good with it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, main case for the day. Um, we're going to talk about this case. It happened in the late 70s. So we're going to jump back. And it's okay. not, I wouldn't necessarily call this vintage, but it's a cold case that recently got solved, which is how it came to my attention. I saw an article about it first, and then there was a couple podcasts that talked about it. But this is the case of Michelle Martinko. Okay. You know who I love she is? a cold case. I don't know who she is. This happened December 19th, 1979. Michelle Martinko was a very striking and gorgeous 18-year-old senior from Cedar Rapids, Iowa. This happened in 1979, as I mentioned, and she had that long blonde hair, kind of Farrah Fawcett type. Mm-hmm. And she's very cute. She's got a very cute little, like, cherub-type face and mm-hmm. very kind and smart and nice and friendly, according to her friends. And that particular night, she'd attended a concert choir banquet with some friends and then went to the mall. So... 
this I think the malls were just starting to really get popular during that time yeah. period like late 70s early 80s and then you get the mall rats and that whole period of time like a, it was a thing for like mm-hmm. suburban America of like teenagers would flood and go to these malls and I think and just hang out we don't think about that now because we don't have malls really anymore most malls right. are shutting down and then you got covid that's like kind of prevented that but people would rather shop on amazon now which is why malls are dying out right um but they were universal back then and i'm gonna jump back in time here to give you a little bit of history about 1979 Sweet. okay and i like to do this because it gives people a point of reference for what was going on at the time that these crimes happened but 1979 was the year that three mile island nuclear accident happened oh china instituted the one child per family mandate during that year Um, trivial pursuit came out that year oh one of my favorite games ever yes i love that game Um, margaret thatcher became the first woman prime minister in the uk that year Mm -hmm. Um, sony released their walkman remember the walkman walkman 200 bucks my dad had a yellow walkman me too dollars 200 bucks isn't that insane Um, the first snowboard was invented that year. I didn't know it was really? that early. Yeah. Um, Americans were taken hostage at the embassy in Tehran that yep. year. Um, it was 86 cents for a gallon of gas, but I guess there was an oil shortage back then. So it should have been even, sh- and I'll talk about that in a second, but it should have been even cheaper than that. But an Atari also cost $200 that year. So a Walkman and Atari were the same amount of wow. money. Which is crazy. You could get a Toyota Corolla for $3,698. You probably still can. Probably, right? <laughs> Michael Jackson's Off the Wall record was out. Uh-huh. He was, I want to rock with you. <laughs> and um, Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. We're big yep. that year. Um, the public sector workers strike. They had a big strike in the UK. Um, ESPN launched. This mm, was the mm-hmm. Entertainment and Sports Programming Network. Darcy, yep. yeah, this should be a big thing for you. You probably love ESPN, right? Get all your updates. I mean, I'm. it might be on right now in the background on mute. Yeah, Don't worry about yeah. it. <laughs> Darcy's a huge sports fan, in case you haven't listened to any other episodes that we've done. Right, in case you're, you're just tuning in now. <laughs> um, the U.S. and the USSR signed the SALT II Strategic Arms Limitations to- uh, talks and treaty during that time period. Mm-hmm. There was a whole ramping up for the the Russians versus the U.S. nuclear battle, and everyone was afraid we were going to get nuked by the Russians. So that was yep. all ramping up back then. Jimmy Carter was the president. Yes, he was. Peanut farmer. Right. Um, the dictator Idi Amin was deposed in Uganda. The Last King of Scotland. Yep. That's a great movie. An excellent movie. I loved it. Um, the Skylab space station crashed back to Earth that year. Oh. It was the first space station, and it crashed over the Indian Ocean. They tried to get it sort of timed so that it would be in an area where it would be the least amount of population that could potentially be harmed. But I guess some parts of it landed on Australia, too. Oh, yikes. Yeah. Um, Voyager 1 launched exploring Jupiter's rings. So it was like a big okay. thing. So they're like, oh, Jupiter rings. Neat. Mm. Um, pope John Paul II visited Poland, his native country. Mm-hmm. He was the first pope to visit a communist country. Mm-hmm. Interesting, right? Um, yep. Saddam Hussein came to power in Iraq Gosh. that year, right? Blast! Seventy nine had so much going on. Right, that was also the year the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. Yep, oil prices increased around the world because of the crisis in Iran. There was a mm-hmm. lot of panic buying. 
Um, the Who had a concert at Riverfront Coliseum where they had that huge thing where 11 people were killed oh, and dozens yeah. were injured in Cincinnati, Ohio. Yeah. It was like a, uh, like a riot that happened uh-huh. and people were just stomped to death. But um, Lord Mountain ba- Mountbatten. Lord, I couldn't read my own damn writing. <laughs> Lord Mountbatten was assassinated by the IRA in Southern yeah. Ireland. And there was a that was- huge thing with that back then. That was Prince Philip's uncle, I think. Cousin or something. I'm, I'm not yeah. exactly sure. But that they was... Were, they were very close. Definitely a huge um, yep. Irish IRA thing going on back then. I remember hearing a lot of news stories about that in the early 80s. But Sidebar, there's a podcast called The Troubles that talks about um, the Northern Ireland and IRA and Ireland thing. It's very good. Check it out. Awesome. Yeah. Um, 23 people died in France, in Nice, when a tsunami hit. It was a big thing. A tsunami hit? Yeah. Wow. Right? In Nice. Uh, the world's first anthrax epidemic happened in Russian, Russia that year. Really? Mm-hmm. Um, American Airlines Flight 191 crashed, exploding near O'Hare Airport in Chicago. Hmm. Interesting, right? USSR invaded Afghanistan, as you mentioned oh, earlier. Yeah. YMCA sued the village people over the song of the same name because they were like, we oh, really? can't be using our name. Um, Sid Vicious of the Sex Pistols died of a heroin overdose while the After trial killed Nancy while Dalton. waiting the trial for the murder of his girlfriend. Right. Pink Floyd released The Wall. Another brick in the wall was a hit off that. Um, bungee jumping was invented that year. Interesting. Right? Bungee jump? Like, I understand... But just like the concept of inventing bungee jumping seems like the that was thing you so would big in the '90s. I remember yeah. everybody oh, yeah. was like, "Oh, have you bungee jumped? Have you bungee?" And, base and I was jumping? like, um, "No, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> no <Yeah>. thanks. <laughs> no thank you." Um, the movies that were big that year were Superman the movie, mm-hmm. Every Which Way But Loose, Rocky Two, Alien, mm-hmm. Amityville Horror, Deer Hunter, Kramer v. Kramer. Deer Hunter is phenomenal. Moonwalker, Muppet Movie. And Star Trek, the motion pick, were all huge that year. I recommend mm-hmm. all those movies. I would go watch every single one of them. They're excellent. <laughs> Deer Hunter is one of my favorite movies. And Amityville Horror is so scary. That version from the late I don't think 70s. I've seen the oh my god, it's so scary. Um, the music of that time was the Bee Gees, "Love You Inside yep. Out," which sounds super creepy. <laughs> Rod yeah. Stewart, Gloria Gaynor was "I Will Survive." Mm-hmm. Um, Donna Summer was doing the disco thing she had some hot stuff and bad girls were big songs michael jackson was huge uh the eagles the village people uh the commodores pink floyd and the police were all doing their thing during that time period putting out some great music and on tv all my children masterpiece theater which i freaking love i love masterpiece my sister theater. Loved that. love that show mash mork and oh. indy Talk about a show I love. I own the box set of MASH. My dad watched that every single day. And by default, I was forced to watch it because we only had one TV. <laughs> so I love I, I've MASH. seen every single episode of that at least yes. twice. Um, Mork and Mindy. Yeah. Classic. Mindy. Classic. Mm-hmm. Excellent show. Price is Right. Taxi. You mm-hmm. ever watch Taxi? I have watched Taxi. On, it was on Nick at Night. My dad also loved that show. The Waltons. Three's Company. Three's Company, too. Uh, the Young and the Restless, Love Boat, Charlie's Angels, Dallas, Happy Days, 
Little House on the Prairie, Different Strokes, Quincy, Family Feud, and Saturday Night Live were all like what everyone was watching on the television yeah. back then. So that's... And 79 was turbulent. Yeah, <laughs> to say the least. Um, so I'm going to jump back into the case here, back to Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And Michelle Martinko was at the local mall. This is kind of... Um, it had only been open for a few months, and it was kind of the happening spot to be. It was called the Westdale Mall. And this is a little bit before Christmas, obviously, December 19th, as I mentioned earlier. And Michelle had left shortly before, before the mall closed at 10 p.m. And she was in the family car, which was, I believe, a Buick, like an old Buick and kind of a greenish color. I don't know if you remember. You probably recognize mm-hmm. it if you saw it. I feel like my dad had that car when we were growing up because he was really big on cars from the mid to late 70s. That was kind yeah. of his thing. We always had one of those. But um, let's see here. Did you say how old she was? She was 18. 18, okay. Just double check. Yes. She's a senior, a high school senior. Okay. And she had just left the mall, and she was getting back into her car, and she had opened the door and climbed in. And at that point, they're not exactly sure what had happened, but they found her at 4 a.m. outside of the JCPenney, and she had been stabbed 29 times. Oh, my gosh. Which, as we mentioned in an earlier episode, it's considered overkill when it's anything more than, you know, two or three stabs because they don't, you know, he doesn't take 29 stabs to right. kill somebody. And somebody, obviously, they feel like possibly knew her. And she fought for her life. And police think that someone who, that it was somebody who knew her, as I mentioned, but she had wounds, defensive wounds on her hands and arms. And... As I, she was in a 1972 Buick Electra, which if you look that up, it's kind of a crazy stereotypical 70s vehicle, very big and boat-like, but they found her in the car slumped behind the wheel. It was obvious that Mm. someone had opened the door, the driver's side door and pushed her over and attacked her. This is like an ambush. Yes. That sort of a thing in the, in the parking lot. And back then they didn't really have cameras and oftentimes these mall parking lots didn't even have lighting when you had yeah. parking spaces that were a little bit farther away from the mall and it was Christmas season. So I'm sure there were a lot of cars there, a lot of people doing that yeah. last minute Christmas shopping. Cause it was only like a week before Christmas. And so she came out late and it was dark and it was cold and she was parked mm-hmm. far away. There was no lights and no cameras. And so I, I'm sure it was easy for someone to grab her or snatch her. Right. But they think it was not a random attack. No, they think they it was think somebody, it was somebody who knew her. And the first person that they look at, because the police are called in, every single officer on duty is called in to kind of investigate this and to get involved with it because this is a very small community yeah. and they're not used to crimes like this happening. They immediately look at her ex-boyfriend. His name was Andy Seidel. And he was her boyfriend for a while, but he had been very possessive and when, he, when they broke up, he was not happy about it, and many people believed that he could be the only person that could have done something like this to her. Okay. And this kind of case was basically unheard of in this type of a community, and it was sort of like once it happened, it sort of ruined the innocence of this very, very small town, yeah. so to speak. And the local police were shocked as well to be interrupting, to have their normal lives you know, peaceful community lives interrupted to go check out this case of this woman who'd been brutally murdered outside of a mall that had only been open for a few months. 
again, this is the late 70s, early 80s, was before DNA evidence and probably before a lot of different types of forensic studies of a crime scene, right? So you got to figure they're probably looking at this and they didn't find fingerprints. So that's pretty much one of the main, Yeah. yeah, one of the main things that they would do. If there's no fingerprints and no, you know, hair samples or things like that left over by the attacker, then it, that there's nothing else they could probably do back yeah. then. And there were initially over 200 community tips called in. Whoa. Back then it was a tip line, right? right. Um, but they go through these very quickly. And despite their best efforts, the case goes cold. And Michelle's family nearly gives up hope as the years begin to pass and nothing happens on her case. Hmm. But then... In 2006, you know, it's been quite a while since her case happened, a cold case investigator comes in and finds blood that was previously not seen. So, what was the blood? I'm going to tell you in just a second, but presumably (laughs) this blood (laughs) belonged to the killer since it was not Michelle's blood. But they found it on the gear shift in the car. (gasps) So, they went back and scraped off this blood from the gear shift and it was not Michelle's. So they immediately determined that this had to have been from the killer. He had to have cut himself Yeah. when he was stabbing her, which is not uncommon right. because oftentimes if somebody is killing and they get blood on their hands, especially the hand that's holding yeah. the knife, the knife can slip and they will oftentimes cut themselves in kind of the webbing of their fingers or on their thumb or whatever points can connect with that right. knife. So they immediately know to scrape that blood off and save it for DNA testing, and they send it into the lab. Um, This person was wearing rubber gloves, which I think is kind of strange for that time period. You don't really hear a lot of cases back in the 70s and before where people were wearing rubber gloves to prevent being found. The perpetrator was wearing rubber gloves? The perpetrator was wearing rubber gloves. And they saw the markings on the outside of the car in the dirt, so they knew he was wearing gloves. Oh, and there were no other fingerprints in the car, but that could have also made his hands more slippery yeah. when the blood connected with the rubber yeah. gloves and caused him to cut himself. A DNA profile was then created for this killer, and the local police every year would have a segment covering this case, and the police kept working on it for decades, but then this scraping from the blood was submitted, and no one ever followed up on it. What? No they one just sent it in, and they were like, well, that's done. That's that. So this community who had this major crime happen, this kind of this tight knit community, it was only about 100,000 people in this community back then, which I guess was small by most standards. But this case was all the more heartbreaking for Michelle's family because Michelle's mom, Janet, was 44 years old when she had Michelle. Oh, okay. She'd had five miscarriages before Michelle was born. And they were very excited that Michelle actually was born. And they considered her a miracle baby. And then at the age of 12, she'd been diagnosed with scoliosis and she had worn a back brace for quite a bit of time. And this was a huge Mm -hmm. thing back then. I don't know if if you remember, but when I was growing up, like scoliosis, like everybody had it. (laughs) We had to get checked. And it's basically just a curvature of your spine. Yeah, we we did like the checks in school, like up until maybe like fifth or sixth grade. And then it kind of just like wasn't a thing that we did at school. But she had it. And she had to wear a brace like from her neck down to like her backbone to help straighten it. And so it made her kind of shy mm-hmm. and self-conscious. Um, and then she, when she got into, I guess, junior high or high school, she blossomed and was able to lose the thing, lose the mm-hmm. back brace. 
and started to turn into this very pretty girl. And Farrah Fawcett was kind of big back then, and she had the hair. Mm -hmm. So, like, she was able to get a lot of male attention back then. She started dating a boy by the name of Andy Seidel. They met roller skating, which is so stereotypical for that time, too. Like, roller skating and skate rinks were, like, a big thing back then. Everybody did it, and you'd have the music and the disco ball, and everyone Mm -hmm. would be skating. But they broke up about... They broke up after dating about two years. Uh, Her friends recall that Michelle was opposed to being in a committed relationship and Andy did not take the breakup well, Mm. as I mentioned earlier. And he pretty much stalked her. Like, if it was today and not the, you know, Mm -hmm. 70s, he probably would have gotten in some legal trouble. And he was, like, monitoring her every move, talking to her friends, looking at anyone she was going on dates with, and talking to her friends to demand information about her. And he had run into Michelle at the mall that night, back in 1979, too, which made him numero uno suspect. Yeah, did he really run into her, or did he know she was there? And He probably yeah. knew she was there. I mean, come on. She was there with the choir friends, because right. she'd had a choir banquet. Um, but he had an alibi for that night and he said he'd gone home after the mall closed and his mom provided his alibi which can't mm. was called into question because we all know that moms definitely want their the best for their child and a lot of times they're willing to kind of stretch the truth to because god forbid my son would never do something like that i'm telling you i've not i've not had this conversation with my mom but i really think she'd be like no i'm not gonna lie for you Mom would be like, no. (laughs) I have a moral obligation. Have that conversation with Um, your kids, folks. (laughs) Tell them you'll turn them in. (laughs) So there's a lot of people out there, though, a lot of moms out there that just have a very hard time believing their child could do anything bad. Sure. I raised that child. He was in my womb for nine months, and there's no way he could do something this awful. Which, you know, it is what it is. The police looked into all the men who knew Michelle and who dated her at the time, and they continuously went back and combed and combed and combed because they knew there had to be something with that information Mm -hmm. that they had just had not noticed before. And they also noted that Andy's behavior at the funeral was, like, really suspicious. He was very, very emotional, sobbing, trying to crawl into the casket, et cetera. The lady doth protest too much kind of a thing. Yeah, very, very unhappy, and he kept telling everyone, I have to know who she loved when she died. What? Which, really? Dude, chill. Yeah. She's dead. Settle down. This is insane. So he's displaying this crazy behavior. And despite this, there's no hard evidence, though, to suggest that he was the killer. Mm. Okay. They look at his alibi. They don't find any DNA evidence from him in there. They decide, yeah, he's a suspect, but we're just going to, he's not going to be a primary suspect. We'll keep him on the peripheral vision over here. Um, Andy ended up leaving Cedar Rapids after high school, joined the Navy, but friends and family were all convinced he did it. Yikes. And they kind of thought he had this mentality that if I can't have her, no one will. Oh, mm-hmm. All right. So everyone's thinking that Andy's the culprit. But they get back to the case, and poor little Michelle had gone to the mall on that night to pick up a coat that had been put on layaway for her for Christmas. Aww. And she had the money to pay for it with her. It was about $180, $186. I've seen various reports and different articles about how much it was. I don't think that's really mm-hmm. necessarily all that important. But that was a lot of yeah. money back then. 
Um, 186 was probably around, you know, five to eight hundred dollars yeah. now. Like it's a significant amount of money, enough to kind of make her a target of somebody who might want to rob right. her. Is what they were thinking. So they started to look at potential for someone who may have saw that she had that money because friends at the mall said they saw her and that she was kind of not flashing it, but that she was innocently, kind of maybe naively, like had the money like out not very in the open. When she she wasn't careful about it. Yeah. And they were like, "Hey, sweetheart, you need to put that money away because someone's going to see yeah. that and try to grab it or do something bad to you. So put the money away." And she had gone to buy that coat and then decided at the last minute she didn't really want to buy it. She was okay with not having it. She had done some other shopping and then she left. And they also remembered Michelle being really nervous, saying that she felt like she was being followed and that someone was watching her. Ooh, that's creepy. Yeah, but no one saw anyone. So they're all looking around and to the best of their recollection, because... I don't necessarily think you have the clearest memory of those sorts of things after the fact if something else didn't happen, you know what I mean? So right. I can't, you know, if I sat there and was like, gee, I wonder what I did yesterday at 12 o'clock. Like, I'm not going to be able to remember detail by detail, especially not later. Yeah. But I mean, like if something traumatic happens that has a tendency to like cement memories in your mind, but that's not necessarily of the previous evening. Like if you witnessed a murder or a car accident, you're going to remember something like that. But if you didn't witness it, and you just hear about the crime later, and then you try to recall what happened well, on your end? Yeah, but but even then, that though, same day? like that still does happen because, especially for her friends, they would be like, okay, wait, how did this happen? What were we doing? What did I miss? So they immediately yeah. start replaying the day in their heads like that. Maybe. But um, Michelle had gone to her car in the dark, yeah. as I mentioned earlier, no street lights or anything like that. And she was parked kind of far away. And, you know, she's got armful of bags and things like that from doing her own mm-hmm. shopping. And I don't think that that was a period of time back then where people were as conscientious about being aware of their surroundings. And there's granted, there's still a lot of women and, and people that do this mm-hmm. now where they get on their cell phone and they don't pay attention to what's right. going on around them. Personally, I've always been paranoid about that kind of thing. So I always am watching, mm-hmm. looking suspicious of anyone who's within 20 feet of me in any parking lot, anywhere outside of yeah, my house. Too. And when I get into the car, I immediately lock yeah. the door. <laughs> but that's just me. I'm paranoid yeah. that way. She was not. She didn't do that. And it's cold and it's Iowa in the winter. Mm-hmm. And she had gone out to her car and I'm pretty sure she opened the door, unlocked the door because there's no key fob mm-hmm. back then. You had to actually physically unlock the door with the key, open it up, put stuff in the back seat or whatever, and then crawled into the front and turned the car on to warm mm-hmm. it up. Because you had to do that back then, especially with those big old cars. Right. You had to get them warmed up before you could go anywhere. And so that's what they think happened is she got in the car, turned it on to warm it up and was sitting there waiting for it to warm up with the door unlocked when somebody attacked her. Mm-hmm. Opened the door, shoved her in, crawled in with her. Um, and it's a bench seat. You know, oh, they don't have the seats yeah. like they do uh-huh. now. Those big old cars, most of them had bench yep. seats. So it would have been easy for someone to climb in and just shove and just her, push over. her over. Yeah. Yeah. And the police initially think that on the surface, this might be a robbery because she had that mm-hmm. money, you know, and people had mentioned that she said somebody maybe was watching her and that sort of a thing. And she had walked out. I believe she was wearing like a black jersey dress and like a rabbit coat, mm-hmm. like She's driving, you know, a relatively new-ish type car. So maybe somebody thought they could get something from her. I'm not sure. But then when they start to investigate a little further, they see that the $186 wasn't taken. Oh. And neither ha- neither were any of the objects that she, or neither were any of the items that she'd purchased either. Oh. 
And then to complicate things even more, the autopsy didn't show any signs of sexual assault. So you got no sexual motive. You've got no robbery motive. So why did this person kill her? And they start to think even more because of the overkill and the suspicion of Andy that somebody had to have killed her that knew her. Mm -hmm. So that becomes, again, where they're playing that scenario in their head and thinking maybe this is something that happened. And she's got defensive wounds all over her hands and body. And she obviously fought her attacker as hard as she Mm -hmm. could. But she's, you know, very probably a small, petite young lady. But she fought to the very end. Whoever it was that killed her had rubber gloves on. They assaulted her. This person was prepped, obviously, ready, obviously planned this out. Because you don't typically have rubber gloves sitting. Yeah. You know, he, he had a knife. Well, he was in ready COVID times, you might, but generally, right. no. And he was able to get in and out of that car without leaving any clues, without witnesses seeing him. So hmm. he had to have been watching right. and waiting, right? This, this was not a spontaneous, like, spur-of-the-moment crime from what they could see. Right. They also found no fingerprints, and there were basically no leads. Um, blood was all over the car, um, but we know that DNA wasn't really a thing yeah. back then. So I believe they preserved the evidence. And then I think they scraped the gear shift back then and just preserved okay. it. And then somebody tested it later because they thought, okay, this gear shift probably has evidence uh-huh. that we can use. And that's the one where they never looked back. Once they submitted the evidence, no one looked into okay. it again. So. Uh, all of the case information, all of the evidence that was there, all the scrapings, all the samples, the clothing, her dress, and the scrapings from the gear shaft had all been put away, filed away. Luckily, they were smart enough to preserve mm-hmm. it for a later date, realizing that they might have the technology later. 2005 was when detectives started looking again through the files and found that gear shaft and sent the blood in from the gear shaft and then never looked into it. But um, the detective that actually started working on the case again had gone to school with Michelle. Oh, so there was kind of a special, yeah. there was a special connection there. He remembered it. It had bothered him all those years and he was determined to take this case on and find out who killed his schoolmate. And DNA was a new forensic mm-hmm. tool that was just starting to explode on the scene in early two thousands. And the detectives looking at Michelle's case, start going through it with a fine tooth comb because they are absolutely positive they can find something in here that wasn't looked at mm-hmm. before and that can be re-examined now to find more clues. And they look at that blood from the gear shaft. They find the DNA evidence that had not been looked back into after it was submitted to the lab, and they come up with a male DNA profile from that. And they determine that this man who killed Michelle likely cut himself, despite having gloves right. on, from the slippery knife. And... Detectives then take Michelle's dress from the same night. It was a black jersey dress from the evidence locker, and they test it too. And they find that the blood on the dress also was from a male, and it matched the DNA profile from the gear shaft. Okay. Likely this is their killer. Yeah. So at that point, they're like, okay, we've got this. We're on, we're on a roll yeah. now. We've got enough to kind of help us go. And they throw this into the CODIS database. Mm-hmm. Thinking, okay, we're gonna get it. We're gonna get a, a hit on here, because um, they want to know who this DNA belongs to, and unfortunately, they don't get any hits mm. with this nationwide DNA database. That's not entirely surprising because typically only those who are arrested for a felony crime would have been in there mm-hmm. back then. Um, and we've talked about other cases in the past where killers. 
They found DNA evidence, but they couldn't find him in CODIS. I believe the cases of McKella and yeah. um, the Tacoma Girls episode, those men were never, yeah. commit, never committed any other crimes that we know of and therefore were not in the CODIS right. database, and neither was this one. The police start combing through males anywhere near that night, and they start asking them to give DNA voluntarily. And they convinced dozens to give DNA, including Michelle's old boyfriend, Andy Seidel. Mm -hmm. All of these samples come back negative. Police are stumped. Mm -hmm. Even Andy, good old Andy Seidel, who nearly jumped into the coffin with Michelle. And so he's just a stalker, not a murderer. Yeah. He's just a creepy stalker. He didn't have anything to do with her death. In the meantime, though, Michelle's parents both passed away. Mm -hmm. So they never got to see her daughter, their daughter's killer found uh, the police collect a hundred samples 100 dna samples from different volunteers of men within that area at that time no matches so the police are really like okay this is stumping yeah. us we've got to find another tool to do this and they asked the fbi to get involved to create a profile and in 2015 new detectives get involved in this case as well and the DNA technology available then allows them to use DNA to find eye color, mm -hmm. hair color, race, and even a picture of what the killer may have looked yeah, like. Yeah, phenotyping. And they do this with Parabon Nano Labs mm -hmm. in Virginia, which we've talked about before on several other shows. And this particular company in Virginia gets involved in the case and they take the DNA and they create a picture of a potential suspect. And it's creepy. They make this portrait of this guy, and they call it a snapshot. They put the face on the killer and the suspect. He's a white male, blonde hair, blue eyes. The genetics were narrowed down, but not for age or hairstyle. Okay. So Parabon actually creates multiple sketches with various different ages and hairstyles to kind of give the public an idea of what he may have looked like back okay. then. And after they release these to the media, hundreds of tips come mm -hmm. in. And then the Golden State Killer case popped up in 2018. So the Golden State Killer case was solved through DNA database matchup with genetic genealogy. They charted the DNA from the family member, from one family member to another, creating a genetic family mm -hmm. tree. And that's how they located him. It says Parabon in this instance took the same sample, the same DNA sample, and they threw it into the public national mm -hmm. database, GEDmatch of people who are uh, voluntarily submitting their DNA to trace personal family yep. tree. July 2018, they get a hit. They find a relative of the killer. And it's a woman in Vancouver, Washington, who is a cousin. Her name is Brandy Jennings. She's a single mom, an office manager, and she is really this elusive link to the killer. And they hope that she can help them solve this uh -huh. case. Right? But... She doesn't really know who this do, is. Do they have a name for they the killer, need... or they just know it's a cousin? Okay. No. They need to do okay. more work here. So the police kind of build out the family tree, starting with her. They go all the way back to the great-great-grandparents, and they look into genetic records, birth records, marriage records, gravestones, etc. And they ask genetic relatives to volunteer their mm -hmm. DNA, and they do. And this helps them fill in this puzzle and creates an even more extensive family tree for them. Um, and then Parabon makes this massive new family tree for the potential killer of Michelle Martinko. And they narrow the search to three brothers Whoa. 
who who lived in Iowa during that time. And they all still live Ooh. in Iowa. And they all match the blood to varying mm-hmm. degrees, but they need DNA samples to positively narrow it down. Okay. October 2018, detectives start looking at the three brothers who are all still alive. You've got Donald, Kenneth, and Jerry Burns. And instead of going directly to these brothers and requesting the DNA because they don't want them to run or hide or do anything else, they kind of surreptitiously collect the DNA from these guys to see if any of them are a match. And they kind of sneak up on Ken and they keep everything, they kind of sneak up, sorry, and they keep everything real hush-hush because they don't want him to bail or anything. They follow one brother to lunch and they get his straw. They snatched a tossed out toothbrush from one of the other ones. And then Jerry's was a little bit harder to get. They had to follow him around a little bit. And they finally follow him to a pizza place where he eventually has a couple of sodas with a straw and they snatch his straw too. So it seems like the straws are big ones. That's crazy. The Golden State Killer was also caught at Isn't that crazy? a pizza place. His was a, p- a piece of the pizza crust. Yeah. Yeah. So Donald and Kenneth were not a match. That means there's only one possible person that could have done this and that was Jerry Burns. He was an exact match. And this was like everyone was super stoked because the sketch from Parabon looked just like he did when he was young. Whoa. Yeah. Um, But Jerry was not an obvious suspect. And I think when we look back at the Tacoma Girls episode, we found sort of the same thing. That was the episode we released about Michaela Walsh and Jennifer Bastian back in September Uh 22nd of this last year. And this totally reminds me of that case. But Jerry was not an obvious suspect. He had no connections to Michelle or her car. Um, or at least, excuse me, he had no connections to Michelle and no criminal record. He's just this respected businessman and father, and they just don't see how he could possibly have been involved in this. There has to be some Mm -hmm. mistake. Now, Jerry was married with three kids, and they immediately pull him in and interview him at his business. And they deliberately choose December 19th, 2018, because that's the 39-year anniversary of Mm. her death. And they check his hands and his arms for possible cuts and scars. And they ask him about his DNA at the crime scene because they want to hear what his excuse is. And Jerry said that he'd been to that mall many times with his family in the past, the Westdale Mall. He knew it well, but he couldn't think of any connection that he could possibly have to Michelle or why Mm. his DNA might be on the scene. So they decide, you know what? We've got the DNA. We've got enough to arrest Burns for murder. And they arrest him. And the camera's rolling and everything is recording in the police car. And they show Jerry. And he mentions to them, which is something that kind of sets off a little bit of, triggers a little bit of a red flag in their minds, but mentions something about blocking out traumatic events. That he has no idea, but traumatic events are easy to block out or something so of that So he's already, nature. like, setting up an Yeah, out he's already, like, kind of, oh... I mean, yeah. maybe, I don't think I did, but maybe I did and blocked it out yeah. kind of a thing. And police, police immediately kind of get this feeling that Jerry Burns isn't denying his involvement or providing right. any plausible explanation as to why he could have been at that freaking mall. And they know they have the right guy. They just instinctively know he yeah. had to have done it. And he's absolutely no emotion and keeps telling him, it keeps telling the police to test the DNA. DNA will prove my innocence. And they're like, dude, we have your DNA. It already proved that you were there. (laughs) But Jerry's family is, while the family of Michelle is relieved 
and excited to finally be wrapping this case up, Burns family is shocked and they refuse to believe any of it. Right. No way. My dad, my brother, my husband or whatever, they has no connection to this. He didn't know her. There's no way he could have done this. He's a good man, et cetera, et cetera. The trial happened February this year. Whoa. So this was a recent find. The trial happened very recently. It started four decades after the murder, which wow. is crazy. I mean, yeah. more and more of these DNA database genealogy type cases are solving mm-hmm. these crimes. And it's awesome to see. And due to the media coverage on this one, the venue changed and they granted uh, the trial request for Davenport, Iowa, which was one hour from the murder location because they just felt he wouldn't get a fair trial unless they okay. moved it from the venue because there's too much media craziness and the jury pool will be tainted because everyone would have heard about it. Yeah. Um, the case was very challenging, though, because the evidence was 40 years old. I mean, right. memories differ. Evidence sometimes isn't as fresh and things of that nature. So it's a little bit more challenging, I think, to try a case 40 years after the fact. But the suspect did not fit the mold or have connections to the victim. He had no criminal background, um, no background really of much of anything. He seems like a really boring guy, but he also had no excuses or explanation as to why mm-hmm. his DNA would be in her car and on her dress. And it's not like just contact def- DNA where, like, he could have brushed up against her. It's his blood. So, like, he would have to have an... Ex- I'll just oh. wait. <laughs> so the defense claims they're... This is the weakest defense I think I've ever heard in my entire life because there's, like, a one in a billion chance that somebody else could be... Could have that same DNA. An identical twin. Right. So, yeah. They claim that DNA isn't a silver bullet for that reason because there's one in a billion chance that somebody else could be... Oh. could be the same have the same dna which is literally yeah. the weakest argument i've ever heard i don't know it worked um, for oj but the prosecutor right well hmm. prosecutors pull in the jailhouse witness isn't there always a jailhouse yes. witness now? i feel like they're just all the time and evidently this guy says burns told him that he could not talk about the case when asked if he did it and he said that either way, he wins because he had the chance to live his life free for 40 years, which Whoa. sounds highly suspicious. That's callous. He also Jesus. said, he was like playing cards with this dude. And he said to this guy that if he didn't stop feeding him the cards or if he didn't stop winning at cards, he would have to, quote, take him to the mall. Wow. Unquote. Yeah. And so this witness was like, yeah, that's hella creepy. I'm telling the authorities. And he did. And the defense called in a molecular biologist. (laughs) Get this. And this is the point about the DNA. They admit that the DNA in the car belonged to Jerry Burns, but that how it got there was not because he was the killer. They claim that the DNA was transfer DNA, that people shed DNA all the time, all over at different places that they contact, door handles, things like that. They know that Jerry was at the mall probably around that time because he frequently went there. So they believe that he touched something and then she touched something and transferred his DNA into her Wasn't car it that his way. Blood? Yeah. Right? So maybe he cut himself, they're trying to say, and she accidentally touched the blood somehow and transferred, which it's completely bullish. Like, there's no possible way. Like, it's just, it's very, very hard to believe. They also claim that Jerry worked at the Buick dealership and his DNA could have plausibly been in the car on the gear shaft and that she could have touched it with her bloody hand or something like that and transferred his DNA somehow onto her dress. And... The prosecution is like, yeah, 
I don't think so. That does not explain in any conclusive or logical way how his DNA could have been on mm-hmm. her dress. There's no way. So the defense then claimed Michelle um, just touched the same things as Jerry. No actual contact happened, and they tried to suppress, excuse me, they also tried to suppress his cell phone searches, which, get this, he regularly visited websites where women were raped and stabbed, where there were portrayals of blonde women being Jesus. raped and stabbed. Yeah, so he was into some creepy rape-type things, sex with murder, victims, victims being strangled, that sort of a thing, with blonde women that looked very similar to Michelle. But that was actually suppressed because they determined there's too much time between the current searches that he was doing now and the crime itself 40 years ago, so they did not allow them to okay. use that in court, which, although sounds annoying, it's somewhat yeah. logical. Uh, because people just like weird stuff yeah. sometimes, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they kill people. But um, the defense called the investigation into question as well, saying that it wasn't accurate and that the evidence had somehow been tainted, etc. Jerry was a married man with kids. How could he leave them at that hour, kill her, go back home unnoticed with no evidence and no one saw him and he had no blood on him and et cetera, He was et married with kids at the time of the murder? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, they just think that it's not plausible that he could have but done But they're not this, offering any, which, like, evidence of that? No. Okay. No. Uh, the, ju- the jury deliberated for approximately three hours and were like, yeah, no, you're guilty. Murder in the first degree. And he got life without wow. parole. He was sentenced August 7th, 2020. Wow. And everyone was super shocked that knew him because they were like, how could this have happened? Um, he's currently situated at Anamosa State Penitentiary. He's filing a bunch of appeals. Um, and then suddenly authorities want to know if Michelle is Jerry Burns' only victim. I was about to say, and I believe have they... There is some yeah. question as to this. Because how does someone kill in that sort of a way and then never or do it again? Or that be their first kill. Right. Um, and then there is a connected case, Jody Hoosentrude. <gasps> do you hear about I, that case? I've wanted to do Jody Hoosentrude for so long. But they, they think it was her producer, though. Because they've never um, found her. So, this is oh. recent. He mentioned her randomly when he was being interviewed by police. And she was a blonde-haired yep. anchor who was kidnapped near her car in a in parking Iowa. lot, similar to this case, in 1995, and she was never found. She worked two hours from where Burns lived mm-hmm. in Iowa. Now, authorities want to make it clear that no evidence has been found that links him but then again there was very little evidence linking him to this first crime in the 80s so it is or in the late 70s so it is probable that he perfected his skills to the point where he did not leave any evidence in the other case that's probably the circumstances of why he brought her up they don't he just mentioned her in the interview Um, they suspect he was involved in other crimes and investigations are ongoing currently. Whoa. So interesting. Very, very interesting that Jody, who's in troop case, is a very um, high yeah. profile one because she was a news anchor and he has some probable connections to it. And the, the just the links to that woman looking very much like Michelle Martinko and same sort of a situation, grabbed from a car in a parking lot sort of a thing. That's his M.O. Yeah. 
So um, stay tuned for further details. For real, because I've been wanting to do the Jody Houston shoot case for a long time. And now I might just, I might have but to you're write waiting it up for, now. That was 1995? Yeah. So some number of years after the, Mar- Mar- after the Michelle Martinko case, yeah. you know, a good little grip of time in between there. But it is possible, right? Yeah. right? And I think one of the main reasons I've avoided doing it is because I feel like just listening to the podcast that I've heard about it so far, it sounds as though they're close to finding someone and there's, been a lot of clues that they've explored and, it, and I just keep expecting right. every day to hear that they've discovered who it was that did it. And a lot of these cases are popping up that way, like the golden yeah. state killer and things like that, where, you know, years pass and suddenly they re-examine evidence, start looking through the files again on a lot of these old cold cases. And then suddenly lo and behold, bam, yeah, they find the killer. Wow. It's a very, very exciting moment for true crime lovers to know that they've caught these yeah. guys who thought they got away That's with That's like one of the, because I've talked about this before, like I love a disappearance story, not like in a bad way, but like they are my favorite stories. Right. And outside of yeah. Maura Murray, which is the one everybody knows, you know, Jody Hughesentree yeah. is the one, is one of the ones that I've always followed because like I go back to it every now and then because it, it like they don't actually know what happened to her. She was supposed to go in to, like, work the 5 a.m., like, morning shift or whatever, and she left her house. They know she left her house, but then she didn't make it to her car, and, like, they don't know yeah. what happened. She's just gone. I've heard so many alternate kind of Reddit-type theories on that yeah. case, too. It's super yeah. fascinating. And I know I just had a big thing where I was talking about where you're going to do better to, to cover more, like um, – cases of minorities and here I am picking two blonde haired, yeah. blue eyed, whitest of the white girls in middle, mid America to talk about. Um, but I had seen this case pop up as a, a critical solved case that was a right. cold one. And I just felt particularly compelled to talk about it for a while now. And then to hear the other podcast pop up on it, I was like, wow, it's yeah. an interesting case because of the links to kind of the golden state and then the links as well to the possible murder uh, to the murder, not the possible murder, but to the murder of, of Jody. Yeah. Wow. I did not expect yeah. that to be so, in there. Right. Just threw a two little, little mm-hmm. gnarly one in at the end for you. A little knot, just in case you thought you were sure just on getting this settled one. in, but it does. What? It just definitely um, shows me the links as well to that case with the two Tacoma girls. I just have a hard time believing that those two separate men yeah. could not have done anything else for like 30 or 40 yeah. years. When you take the time to stalk and kill another human being, I don't think very often that it's a one-time thing. Right. You had to at least attempt other ones, have other crimes... It just is so very, very, very rare that it's a one-time thing. And then when you compound that with the fact that it was two separate I men. I know, and that they were not neither related. That one was, of them, was so wild about that to me. And neither one of them yeah. did anything else or had any kind of criminal record. I just find that incredibly yeah. hard to believe. So either that or they just did a really, really good job covering up their evidence and covering yeah. their tracks. Wow. So in any case, do you want to have anything else to add or do you want to wrap it up? Let's go ahead and wrap it up. Yeah, it's a good solid episode. And if you, we're going to go ahead and wrap the episode up now. Please rate, review, and subscribe. It's very, very helpful to us. It helps us rank higher in searches and it 
helps us improve for the listeners as well. If you have any comments or suggestions, you can shoot us an email at the podcast at gmail.com. Social media? Yeah, we are at the BFD podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. So we will post all kinds of pictures and references and info there too. Yeah, we'll post some pictures of Michelle and um, Jody as well. And mm-hmm. then Jerry Burns. So you can see what this creep looks like. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe. Keep it real. Always lock your door when you get into your car at the mall or any (laughs) other parking lot. (laughs) Um, Lost my train of thought. And always always live live your best life. Your very best life. And always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys.